everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi. I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Anika Prather. She is the head of the school she founded called the Living Waters School. And we're here to talk to her today because it has a particular philosophy, which we're very excited about, which we think may actually serve to benefit students. But um, I'm going to let Ian ask the first question. So welcome, Dr. Prather. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Dr. Prather, I've been looking so forward to uh, speaking with you because I think you have a very interesting take on what kids should be reading as part of a fundamental learning program. But before we dive into that, I noticed your Twitter feed, you have an interesting quote from James Baldwin, and I'm going to read it uh, for our readers, and I'm just curious why you chose this. Mm -hmm. It goes like this. You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or who had ever been alive, end quote. Yes. So I'm curious, why, why that quote to be your, your foundational element on Twitter? Um, because there's such a fight of what books we should be reading ourselves, what books we should be leading our kids to read. And my concern is that being so quick to cancel or to give this required list that you should and should not read, we are hindering our kids from building a much broader worldview and understanding. I feel the thinking of young people is is very limited. I'm going to give you a good example. It's it's an are you kidding me example. Uh, (laughs) I was talking to a college student and we were talking through just the, the current racial tensions. It was soon after George Floyd had been murdered. And the student says to me, you know, the time of Martin Luther King is over. It's time for action. And I, my heart sank when this very educated college student who was an activist, just very loved her people, just really wanted to see change, made that comment. And, and, and so there's a question I often ask, this is just a little example, a lot, a lot of African-Americans, a lot of people, all races, when you ask the question, what did Martin Luther King accomplish? Most people cannot answer that question. Not really. They'll say, I have a dream speech. They'll say he marched, bus boycott. But they don't understand the full scope of the work he did. And most of them can't say what he read, what motivated him, what inspired him, what made him think. They have certain quotes they pull from what he said. You have those who are more um, on the Democratic side or the more activist, you know, Black activist side will pull out some of his more intense quotes about racism. And then you have those who are on the more side of, you know, let's just all be peaceful, turn the other cheek. Or sometimes that could be on the Republican side or the conservative side. And they'll pull out, you know, you know, um, you know, quotes from his I Have a Dream speech. And people I don't seem to be reading him in in his fullness. And they don't seem to be reading like all of the letter of Birmingham from a Birmingham jail. You know, like you got to read all of it to really understand it. And so and what Martha King teaches us, what James Baldwin teaches us is that their thinking was formed by reading 
much broader than out, I mean, outside of their racial context. They were reading the classics. They were reading various works of the canon. They may have been been drawing from slave previous slave owners. They didn't let those types of things say, oh, I'm not going to read that because they they recognized they had the strength of mind to say I, what they agree and disagree with. And they also recognized they could pull truth from various places. Yeah. And so that quote for me means that this is what I want for myself. And this is what I want to teach my children, my students. So the watchword today in terms of thinking about kids literacy um, seems to be accessibility that whatever literature we assign them, kids immediately have to be able to recognize if it's fiction, the protagonist, or um, or relate uh, based on kind of almost just physical characteristics yes. or a certain kind of background to the author. But it seems like you're not a fan of that way of judging whether we should read a particular piece of literature or not. What do you think of the idea of, you know, using accessibility as a criterion? And do you see a problem? Do you think all of these works written by people who don't look like the people reading them, are they accessible to kids? I think we can make them accessible by bridging them to what is accessible. Because the the canon, the classics, they really tell the human story. A lot of, I think the myth, a lot of people who may complain about reading the canon Oftentimes you'll find they haven't read it themselves, like really studied these works. They've got a few catchphrases like they'll mention, well, Aristotle, you know, said people, some people were born to be slaves. Like they'll pull the certain quotes out of context and make a judgment call on the entire body of work or all the writings of that one author. When there's so much more you need to understand about Aristotle before you can make a conclusion there. And then people, you know, made take what I'm saying and, and, and it may offend people, but I, I think what helped me is I took what was accessible to me and maybe let me make it, bring it home a little bit. I, I, I connected to Du Bois and I connected to Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King. And I'm constantly reading the literature of my ancestors, of my people. I stay immersed in that. And maybe that's why it's so hard because you're doing a double reading. But Du Bois says we we have a we're we're still in a situation where a double consciousness is necessary. And I think I don't think we'll outgrow that because especially in America, the world is full of so many different people. And as much as we may want to be separate, we really are connected in how we've built this nation. So we have to know each other. So I, I start with what's accessible: the literature of my people, the, the literature that I love, whether I'm reading. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates or Zora Neale Hurston, but then I'm connecting it to what Socrates may have said, what Shakespeare may have said, mm-hmm. because those authors did not write literature and say, okay, this literature is only for white people, so I'm writing the story just for Europeans. You know, they, they were writing just talking about common human experiences, and many people don't realize this. Most, if not all, I want to say all, I, I think I could venture to say all of the authors of the Harlem Renaissance read these texts and found inspiration in these. They would actually sit around and have literature discussions like Socratic dialogue about classic texts. Elaine Locke thought something was wrong with you if you didn't have this type of education. And he's the father of the Harlem Renaissance. Like if he met a black person who was not educated in this way, the way that he was, which is classically inspired, liberal arts inspired, he had a word for you that we would consider very derogatory. <laughs> and so I don't even want to repeat it. I got mad at him at first, but that's really deep to me because he's the father of the Harlem Renaissance. He wrote this beautiful essay called The New Negro, 
And a lot of us read it with, I don't think, the right lens. And what he's saying is no longer are we going to tell our stories as if we're these lowly people just trying to make our way here in America. Our story is art, as much art as it as any epic, like the Odyssey or the Iliad wow. or Beowulf. My the black story is just as fantastic as their story. It's full of the same adventures. It's full of the same heroes and villains and overcoming impossible odds. It's full of journeys from distant lands back to home. Like that is those characteristics of the common epic that we read and read to our children and think, oh, this is this is the best. Elaine Locke was saying our story could be in that lineup. Right. So, Dr. Prada, your courage in sharing what you just said. First of all, it's infectious. So thank you for saying it. But it's very rare because there are those who are saying, yes, the black story is universal, but it, it can't coexist. Let's actually eliminate some of this, you know, in, in New York City, there was a movement afoot to eliminate Shakespeare from eighth grade cur curriculum. So I'm curious, first of all, can you, what is the decolonization movement? And why do you think it's not helpful for children of all races? I want to say this first. I, I don't believe any of the educators have any ill intent. I think their heart is a desire to deal with the racism that has plagued American education since schools were started on North America. That has been an issue, and I don't want to ignore that. And I think they mean well. Um, but I think a lot of the decisions that are being made are being made without really having read the literature themselves. And without really understanding how much these texts have inspired all people and to cancel them, to decolonize, you're actually creating holes in our understanding of our own history. And I, I'll say it like this. I say I and I'm not saying this flippantly. I cannot change the past. And I don't say that meaning, well, I can't change the past, so, you know, whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, I mean it with sincerity. We cannot change the fact that through a lot of very traumatic things, violent things, horrible things, we have become interconnected. To decolonize in the way that people are talking about now is to pull us up by the roots. I gave an example on Twitter one time where I said, um, I was out gardening one day and, and this whole lesson popped in my head and I was out gardening. And, and please don't listen to this and think I'm a gardener. I'm not. I was attempting. <laughs> let me say I was attempting to garden. I have since given up, but I was attempting. But anyway, I was pulling up some flowers and, um, and weeds. And I guess I couldn't quite tell the difference, but I pulled up a flower whose roots to become entangled with another flower that I didn't want to root out. And when I pulled it out, thinking I was doing the flower bed a favor, I pulled out the other flower. Of course, you know, I tried to replant it and all that stuff. My point with that is the way we're thinking about decolonizing, when we're saying we're just going to remove it from the curriculum, that means your students will not really understand Martin Luther King, anything he wrote. If you're planning to, so if you're, if you're planning to remove, decolonize in the way that we're going now, that means you're also going to have to cancel most black authors. 
And that's frightening for me because when I read a lot of the black authors, like if you even just go through, like if you just go through the Norton anthology of African-American lit that was compiled and edited by Henry Louis Gates. And um, it was first a project done with Nellie McKay. And now there's a, a new, I think Nellie McKay has passed away, but another professor, but Henry Louis Gates, they, they, they put footnotes wherever various Western literature is cited. And just about every piece of literature in that anthology cites a Western text at some point. So if you're going to decolonize, that means you're saying we're not going to read any of the Black authors that have been instrumental in fighting for our liberty. liberty. We're going to only read contemporary authors. But the thing about it is a lot of contemporary authors still read the can. I was just reading Between the World and Me a year or so ago, and he's talking about Prometheus bound in like the first chapter. <laughs> yeah. You know, if Ta-Nehisi Coates, and I, now Ta-Nehisi Coates, I'm not, and, and I think what the issue is, I don't think it's about changing the literature, it's about changing our attitudes. And I think that's what I wish people would do. Instead of trying to change the literature, let's change the attitude with how we go about this. Well, that's that seems to be what you set out to do. Can you tell us a little bit about your school and how you got the idea for it and kind of what what motivated you to do this? I mean, and, and how and how the school is accomplishing this goal of changing the attitude? So I the school is going into its eighth year. We were we started out for the first five and a half years, six years. We were a brick and mortar school in Southern Maryland, Temple Hills. The virus came. We went online just to get to the virus and opened up an entire new way of doing the school because evidently there were families that had been following our school and there's no school like this near us. So it became accessible to people in other states. And so we decided to make it more of a hybrid where we're online for all the classes and even have an online experience that they can feel like they're having this philosophy and building community, but online. And then wherever you are located, you go do different activities like hiking. And most of the students are here in the Maryland, D.C. area. So we go every Friday, we go hiking, field trips and have activities. We have Entrepreneur Day where they make their own businesses and you come and you can buy stuff from the kids. And even the Entrepreneur Day, those who are out of state were able to sell their products online. We set up a screen so people could pick their products from those who are out of state so they could participate. And so um, now what we've done, um, we have now um, leased a new building in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, right on King Street, where we can continue this work. We stay online because we still have out-of-state students, but then we have like a center. It was more like a student center where we come for electives, community building, nature study, and some of our gatherings and events. And, and so it's been really great. And, and the motivation behind that, I was in public schools for about six years. And then I left um, and supported my parents who started their own private school, a classical school. That is where my life changed. I felt like my heart was very sensitive to the students. Okay, when I was in public school, and I, I enjoyed my time there, but when I was in public school, I always had one or two or three students who could not follow the traditional path. And that's just reality, right? You know, public schools, private schools, no school perfectly meets every child's need. And I think I really connected with my own experience as a child. I did not enjoy school as a child. I don't think I would not be here without my mom and dad. They were phenomenal people. They are the ones who carried me through. 
as I reflected on that in my life, I've began to realize what if that child doesn't have a parent like my mom and dad, will they just be lost? Will they just fall through the cracks? And so what I decided to do um, is I began to really think about that. So I left public school, just, just kind of uh, worried about the child that would fall through the cracks. How do we capture them? So they're not lost. Mm -hmm. And so I went to my parents' school was smaller. Um, It seemed to be a little bit more space for me to run after that child who might fall through the cracks. And it was a classically inspired school. I was a performing arts teacher, which I eventually became the the great books teacher. And I incorporated the arts into that class. And I just loved it. Um, My dissertation is based on my experience teaching great books to Black students and how I wove in using the arts. Then that school did not last long. It lasted only 10 years. It closed down and I went on and got married and had kids and ended up with a son who might fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And they're not, you know, it's not like they're a majority, but they're there. You know, if you have three kids, my, I would almost bet if you have at least three kids, one of those kids is a struggling child. No matter what you do, no matter how much you love on them, they struggle. And that's the way it was in my house. I have a brother. He was an honor student, did great in regular schools. I struggled. And so, but when my son came into the world and I, in preschool, I recognized, because I've been in education for so long, I knew what, what his fate would be, even as I began to look for where he would start kindergarten. And I came out to my husband one day and I said, honey, I, I have to start a school. And he said, what? <laughs> well, he said, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you- <laughs> and, um, but he gave me this ultimatum. He has an MBA, so he's a numbers guy. So he says, um, if you can get, and my whole dream was just to be a one-room schoolhouse, would just be me, my son, and, a, and like 12 other kids. And I, I found a place my church was willing to let me rent a room to have my little one room schoolhouse was just going to be K through second grade. And it was, I was going to just start small and just see what could happen. And long story short, uh, by the, he gave me this deadline. If you can get 12 students by the first week of August, I think the first Friday in August, if you don't have it, then we can say, Hey, I don't think this is kicking off. You're going to have to go back to work and we'll figure out something else or we'll sell our house and you homeschool, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And I ended up with 30 mothers who had the same story as mine. I need to find a school where my child can really learn and thrive and feel safe and valued, even though they're different, not special needs, not a behavioral problem. They just march to the beat of a different drummer. And so that the philosophy, which is the Sudbury model, which is the first thing that drew my attention because my son needed that freedom. He's very creative. He's always asking why, 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 why? He's like knows no bounds. His curiosity knew no bounds. And he wasn't really interested in being confined to the objectives of a lesson. And the Sudbury model allowed him that freedom to pursue his interests, his passions. And then I married it with classical education, but not not ever having them intermingle because they're too different to really intermingle. But half of the day, half of the time students are free and that freedom is you can pursue any interest, whether it's art, dance, music, gaming, writing, any interest. My son's main passion is the study of animals. He is definitely a nature scientist, an environmentalist already. And he's only 12, but he's just got, he's just, has so much knowledge of this because of the freedom he was given to just read as many animal books and watch as many animal documentaries as he wanted to. And a lot of times we think if you give a child freedom, they won't want to learn. It's just, they they may not want to learn what you want them to learn, but they will want to learn. How many grades is the school now? K through 12. Oh, wow. Okay. So what happened was people kept coming 
and I had to keep going back to the Department of Education to ask, can I up my, to yeah. our own, and you saw to a big increase in enrollment during the pandemic? What happened was we were at 50 when the pandemic started, when we were in the building. It went down to 29 and now it's working back. It looks like we'll have about 40 this year. So it's every year it's growing. 40 kids total K to 12? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I love it. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. So I'm starting a national baccalaureate high school with just ninth graders. Okay. I'm curious. What would be the three books that have to be read by all students? Well, we do a common read. So we just read Frederick Douglass's autobiography, his first one, and we read Booker T. Washington's autobiography so they can compare the two, compare the two and how they thought about equality and education and literacy. And then we have a, a discussion about that. And the third, actually third through 12th grade, read that is a common read. And so I, I invite the parents to help them read it, read along with it, do it on Audible. And I try to pick common reads that at least a third grader who, who can read can wrap their mind around and join the discussion. Okay. So those are two, just so they can do that comparison. And then probably a Socratic dialogue, definitely the allegory of the cave. And, and let me say this too. Most of my students are coming from places where this type of learning is very foreign to them. Yeah. So when I talk about my school and it being classically inspired, it is not like most classical schools. So when you first come in, you're started off with bits and with pieces of classic texts or works of the canon. One of the main curriculums that I love that's been very, very helpful to me is the Touchstones Discussion Project. So it's like one pair, like one page, maybe a two, maybe a page and a half of a really meaty part of a classic text or work from the canon. So it introduces a student who's never had this type of reading to reading this way. Mm-hmm. And then we talk through it. OK, as they grow up and go through it, they learn to read whole texts. Right. Yeah. They learn to read whole text. And, and going back to the original question of accessibility, that is one of the ways I make it accessible. Now, they don't usually struggle with reading the books that are relevant to us, that look like us, where the characters look like us. They're immediately, that's easy, you know, that comes natural. But induced, introducing them to Shakespeare or Augustine, uh, that's a new world. So I start off with like a mother would feed a baby bird with bits and pieces that I've prepared, but I'm not giving the children's version. I'm not giving the abridged version of that text. I'm just taking a small, the true yeah. version of the text, but a small portion of it for them to marinate on. There are no cliff notes here. Right. Yeah, although it's interesting. It's not like, you know, you sit down most uh, white kids in America and offer them Shakespeare and Augustine and they find it accessible either. So. That's true. That's true. That's very true. There's there's a a larger problem here. Yeah. Um, Oh, that's so good. So are all all the kids at your school African-American? Yes. We used to have Hispanic. We had we had a white student this last year, but it's predominantly African-American. But that's by choice. That's by choice of the people applying. That's not for you deciding. Nope. Because my school is not Afrocentric. And that's really important for everyone to understand. Right. It's the canon. And in fact, if I if I take your point well, because I've heard you, you know, don't abandon the canon, which I love. Your whole point is to expand the canon that the literature we should benefit from Socrates as well as contemporary writers, right? Yes. Who are fires, right? Yes. So I'm curious, what then is the pushback that you get from more progressive folk who do who don't want to integrate, who say we've spent enough time on these 
you know, dead white male writers. So what kind of pushback do you get? Because what you're saying seems eminently reasonable and expansive. And by the way, inclusive. It is inclusive. Right. So but what kind of pushback do you get? Well, the pushback at first, when I first say it, is because they don't. I don't think they understand where I'm coming from. There are times people hear me first speak initially, they think I'm coming from a certain perspective, where I'm I'm denying my heritage. I'm not interested in reading Black literature. After they hang out with me for a little bit, they understand I'm saying inclusivity. I'm saying let's expand it. Now, those there may be some who will say, and we had this discussion at Howard with students, well, why do we need to read the why don't we just read, even though they may be inspired by the canon, why don't we just read what these people wrote? And I asked one simple question. Would you fully be able to understand what they mean if you don't understand the people they're referencing in their texts? And at that point, they're like, oh, that's that's true. So that's why it's called reading back. I think like, like if we think about CRT, a lot of people have misunderstandings about CRT because they're not, they only see one part of it as it is right now. Right. They don't understand the historic context of it. They don't know that CRT is out of critical theory, which comes from you got to understand Paulo Freire. You got to understand pedagogy of the oppressed and where that was come. Like there's a whole historic context that people are missing and don't understand. And so therefore we have a lot of this tension now rooted in people just not understanding something. I didn't know this is what I was doing, but someone said when I say this, they said you're talking about reading back. So if I'm reading one text. And that one text cites another person, then I need to go read that person oh, until oh. so I can fully understand this is why Martin Luther King is a lot more complex than people realize. This is why pe- people don't understand. Like John, James Baldwin, who was fiery, right? He could stand before William Buckley and debate him, right? <laughs> In Europe. But, uh, and, and, and we get all excited. Oh yeah, he told him he's so smart. And, and we, we kind of appropriate him as this militant activist. And he was that, and then he wasn't that. Because I'm going to give you a good example. So in his uh, Fire Next Time book, James Baldwin, and you have to read all of him to understand this. And, and people do this with Anna Julia Cooper too. So I'm giving you a couple examples. So with James Baldwin, he, in his Fire Next Time, he talks about he had left the church. He was no longer going to be a Christian. And he was kind of searching who, who was his tribe who was his religious group or political group or whatever. He felt a little homeless in the world. And so he began to kind of sniff around the and check out the um, Nation of Islam and just see what they're all about. And he meets with Elijah Muhammad and and he he meets with the whole group. And and in his mind, before the meeting is over, he decides this is not my home. This is not my tribe. And he kindly says, you know, thank you so much. I, I think I'm good. I'm not interested in joining and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head home. And at which point, I think Elijah Muhammad says, well, I'm going to send some, some gentlemen with you to protect you. And he says, protect me from what? He said, and Elijah Muhammad or someone within the group says, to protect you from those white devils. And <laughs> James Baldwin says in the book, and I said to myself, well, I'm about to have a drink with some of those white devils when I leave here. <laughs> In that same story, he talks about yeah. the relationships he's built with black people and white people. He says, I have some white people that I trust just as much, if not more, than my black brothers. Right. That's the whole point. My life. That's the whole point. That's, That's the, whole the point. whole point. And so this is not a political thing. This is not a racial thing. This is about humanity. You know, people talk a lot about Anna Julia Cooper and she was this feminist and she stood for this and that. And I literally just read an essay from her where she talked about 
the brilliance of Thomas Jefferson and the guilt he felt about his life. And she allowed for that. This is a woman who was enslaved, but she, and, and so some of us would, if she'd spoken that today, we'd label her an Uncle Tom or something like that. But if you read her in context, if you read all of her literature, all of her voices from the South, she is so complex. But at the end of the day, where she says, this is for red, white, black, all races to come together. And this is the way education should be done in this way where we all come together through these classic texts being bridged to our life. Yeah. Personally. Wow. Well, and, with, and without that context, I mean, you, it sort of exacerbates the problem like young people already have, which is that they think the world started yesterday. And so without kind of a, a sense of all of these other people and the, the Baldwin quote is great because it talks about other people have experienced this pain and this is not something that just started yesterday. But, you know, the, the more we sort of restrict what people read, the more young people, you know, are become convinced that they're right, that Everything I'm experiencing today is completely unprecedented. It's infuriating to listen to. <laughs> it is, and, 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 and we and we we take certain people, like I said, like I was. I'm I'm now reading through the works of uh, Chinua. I hope I'm saying his name right, Chinua Achebe, right? And you would think the way his stories really deal with colonization and the pain of that in his country, that he would be much bitter and angry than he really is. But he really had a deep respect and love for classics mm. in the works of the canon. In his memoir, it's called There Was a Country. He gives this complete tribute to his mom and his dad who read the canon and taught him to read the canon and made sure he went to schools that were classically inspired. Wow. And then what he does, though, and he says it. At the end of Things Fall Apart, it's really deep because at the end, when a Conquo dies or commits suicide and, and the, the white man is taking down his body and sees all of that, this, it ends with this one quote that goes something along the lines of, hmm, this is an interesting tale. Basically, the white man is saying, what an interesting story to talk about the rise and fall of Conquo. I might have to write that, but I'll, I'll change some of the wording so, so people won't know basically that I drove him to kill himself. You know, like so. And so what what Achebe is saying there, that if we don't teach our children and if we ourselves don't learn to master this language, we will not be able to be our own storytellers. And so what Achebe is saying, I, I'm reading the canon, I'm gaining this literacy. And he got a lot of pushback for not writing his stories in Igbo. Yeah. He writes it in beautiful English with Igbo words. He has a glossary in the back interspersed as necessary. And he got a lot of pushback. And why does he do that? Because he wanted everyone to know the true story of this tribe in West Africa. Yeah. He didn't want that translated by a white person. He wanted to be his own storyteller. And so one of the key reasons why it is essential that we teach our children this literature is to give them the literacy that they can continue to be their own storytellers. The Harlem Renaissance wanted to be, authors wanted to be their own storytellers. Frederick Douglass wanted to be his, he wrote his autobiography, what, like three times. He, wanted, he didn't want somebody else translating his story. And so if we're really going to bring racial healing, it is important that we use a common language. And that common language, we can't do anything about it, is English. 
It, that's just it. What did I say? It, it, it is what it is. It's, I can't do anything about that. And so we master it and we learn from our ancestors who mastered it to use it to tell our own story and thus fight for our liberation. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we are so glad you were able to come talk to us today, Dr. Prother. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe, deeply in gratitude to Dr. Prother. And you can find episodes of Are You Kidding Me? at the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Please write us with more suggestions. Yeah, thank you again. This was wonderful. Thank you so much.